We have to get rid of Jones. Wow, Hannes, we probably need a drink before <laughs> yeah, we start talking about like this. We definitely need to open up this beer. Yeah, let's open. Do you want to open? And I, yeah, and I say hello. Hello, we're back. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for hosting. Yeah. And nice to talk to you again, Chris. Over Skype. Yeah, joining you from Switzerland. Awesome. Yeah. Well, people say a lot the scientific system is broken. I think one of the integral parts that might be hampering the scientific progress and the advancement of science, many of these things are linked to the publishing system that we have right now. Thank you for pouring, Ashley. Yeah, you're yes. welcome. I see you start already, Chris. Yeah. Cheers. 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 Some vol. I think the things we're talking about is some arbitrarity in in grants, in uneven review, um, flaws are not detected in the review. And then this impact factor that everyone is so crazy about, but at the same time, everyone agrees it basically doesn't mean anything. There's just a few of these examples that where, where I think the, the scientific system is kind of broken. This is, I mean, this is such a huge topic. Um, like the way, the publishing system, the peer review system we have at the moment is pretty much the only thing we have at the moment for assigning a value on truth in everything that is published. And that is crazy important for what we, you know, for informing the public about what they want to do, for informing other scientists about what they're going to do next. Um, and in some respects, I agree with you, it is broken that there are several problems building uh, at the moment. Papers are not reproducible. There's too many papers uh, for people to like fully digest the scientific literature. But um, in general, this system has has existed for hundreds or a hundred years, let's say, and has been doing pretty well. Like we've done some really great science um, while it's been going. So to completely tear the system down is is crazy. I completely agree there. Um, the system works. We have made a lot of great things through science and only through this strict peer review system. On the other hand, I think there's a major game changer that came up in the last 20 years, which um, makes the journals kind of obsolete. And that's the internet, obviously, right? Yeah, I guess I was just going to add that, you know, with, with the system, um, it's also become quite easy for um, people to game the system, which is professors and um, also the publishing companies themselves. For example, there's a, um, there's a journal that has an extremely high impact factor, for example, but because they only publish like a few articles a year, just because, like, just because of that, they're able to have like a slightly higher impact factor than a journal that publishes more often um, and more articles. In chemistry, the, the um, uh, journals that publish reviews constantly have a higher impact factor, even though they publish no original science, they're just regurgitating what other people have done. I guess it's all, all right to publish a lot of reviews. I think they're very important. However, if we then link our scientific merit to it, it doesn't really, doesn't really work, right? Because it's just the impact factor. And, and I think I've never met anyone who says it means anything. But still, everyone, not everyone, but many people look at it a lot, right? Same for the age index. And yeah, the impact factor of a journal is just... or or just the name is just so important and... Yeah, scientists build their whole careers around this impact factor. And that's how, you know, often hiring decisions are made, as we mentioned earlier. 
yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's an important issue. It's a big issue. And then that's why it's important that we also find solutions to these problems and maybe find a more viable alternative when possible. Yeah. That's one thing is the impact factor, which this arbitrary measure, what on the basis of which we hire, but actually my point when I say we should get rid of journals is a bit deeper. I don't think we need, we need this. I don't think we need this separation by topic anymore. Back in the day, maybe it made sense that you had like one journal for chemistry and one for developments in physics and one for whatever psychology things. And then, of course, they split up in many different topics. And today we have how many? I have no idea. Thousands and ah, tens of thousands. Tens of thousands, of yeah. And the separation, this distinction is somewhat arbitrary, and especially also the distinction in value we, we give them. Because the journal, any paper that is published in, let's say, Nature, compared to whatever niche paper with impact factor 1.5, they have the same scientific value, right? Just one has a lot of buzzwords. This is maybe a bigger study with more authors and more money that went into it, and maybe bigger names writing it than a smaller paper. But their scientific value is basically the same. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the journals, certainly Nature would argue that, no, the, the, the paper published in Nature in the Higher Impact Journal has a higher... Um, scientific value. Um, more people should read it and more people should base their experiments off it because nature, the, the way it works with the editor choosing whether a paper should be sent to peer review and then sending the paper to peer review to the top scientists in the field, those scientists judge whether that paper is interesting enough or novel enough to be, to be published. And, and they're arguing that that system ensures that the paper is more valuable than the paper not not um, as strictly filtered. It's also the idea of holding um, that these these studies should be held to a certain like standard of, of um, rigorousness. These these studies might be a bit more controlled or a bit more carefully done um, than some of the other studies in the lower impact factor. I think that's the overall goal. So what you're describing is basically the scientific method, right? The peer review, and if they are scientifically accurate, this should go for any paper published anywhere, right? So this doesn't distinguish a high-impact journal from a low-impact journal. And what you said, Chris, is that the papers should be novel and interesting enough. And I don't think the editor should judge that, or the peers even. I think all the science that is scientific enough by the scientific method, by our standards, should be published. And I don't think anyone should decide, this is not interesting, we should not put it out there, because the work has been done, right? The money has been spent. It should be out there for everyone to read. And it is. It's just in a lower impact journal. But this directly limits who is going to read it, if people are likely to believe it or not, or to actually engage with it. And I think that's where this entire thing goes wrong. With this technology we have today of databases and search engines, we don't need the journals anymore because we separate already. No one goes to, or really ever, people actually read journals looking for the interesting articles by hand, but everyone, I'm pretty sure everyone uses search engines to find their papers today. So the distinction between the journals there is completely arbitrary by topic, right? Yeah, definitely. But then you kind of negated your point there, because if it is published in a low-impact journal, it is still searchable and present on the web, so it's kind of okay. But the journal is still there, but then this journal name, right, you still look at it, you still notice, oh, I found this nature paper about something, not I found this other paper. And it still matters to us, even though it maybe shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also something that can happen, uh, which is called the informant bias, where you're more likely to trust something just simply because of who said it. 
And I find myself a lot, for example, when I'm looking for papers to cite, if I'm just looking quickly for a citation, I'm more likely to trust a paper, for example, from Nature, other than like another journal article. And it might not even be, the, it might even be the same caliber of study, or maybe even the, the study that was published in the lower impact factor might even be the better study. But because it was, you know, published with this brand name, quote unquote, um, I'm automatically more inclined to trust it. Which I don't know is necessarily like the best, um, the best system, right? And I think that it, yeah. That's that's really interesting because um, that this kind of touches on the reproducibility crisis that's currently gripping a lot of different fields, um, where it's it's being observed that papers are people can't reproduce the science, and in terms of the scientific model, that means that it's a lie. Uh, that whatever was written in that paper was wrong and is totally fictional. And this is huge. This is awful. Um, and one of the, the most interesting things about this is that the higher impact the journal, it seems that there are um, uh, potentially uh, more papers are unreproducible because people are trying to strive for the sexy science, the new crazy result and making up things or doing things in suspect ways, which means that it's not reproducible. And so actually the the truthfulness of the high impact nature and science journals is is worse than say the, the sort of bog standard um, middle of the road journal for each of our different subjects. Um, and this is awful because that's like the one thing the journals are supposed to do is to make sure that it's true or at least reproducible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of getting onto your side, Hannes. So I think we should get rid of <laughs> I think another very important point are these paywalls. And yes, open science is becoming more and more common that people publish in open in open access journals, and I think it's amazing. But at the same time, many journals are still asking for a lot of money from universities, and there's this whole fight with Sweden and Elsevier these days. And mm. there's also other companies who went into this fight now. I mean, it's crazy, like for a group of potentially very intelligent people working together to solve problems, they are, scientists are pretty stupid, the fact that they pay both to publish their articles, and then once they publish their own work, they have to pay to get it to read it again. It's the most illogical system uh, being completely exploited. And then their friends are then not paid to review their own work. Yeah. And now, like, I bet you when you come to submit your papers, you've been asked by the publishers to format the document into the proper proper um, t- like shape for the for the journal. So you're also doing the editor's job for them. Like, what are they actually doing? So literally all they're doing is saving the document as a PDF and then uploading it online, which I am personally very glad that somebody can do that for me. What's the other paper? Okay. <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't want to name names here because um, it might be significantly career limiting for this. But uh, I have. I have submitted uh, papers to journals, um, and they have come back after being um, edited by the journal with more mistakes in them than they started off with. It's insane. It's just the most frustrating thing. I mean, we do have to be careful here that we don't start just taking our frustrations. The, like the minute day-to-day frustrations we have with publishing our papers um, out on the system. Like, I think we should just talk about whether the system itself is broken rather than maybe, let's say, certain certain journals are very irritating. Absolutely. Um, I think from this uh, this paywall feature that, that we have these days um, comes with another gigantic issue that's the engagement with the public, which basically excludes the public from 
the knowledge we created from the public money, right? Mm. And I think yeah. this is highly unethical. Yeah, yeah it's awful. I, I completely agree with your point. And especially like now in our society, information is, is essentially as good as a currency. And especially now when there's so much pseudoscience on the blogs out there, I think the biggest example that comes to my mind is the, um, is the vaccine, um, the vaccine information. So there's so much misinformation and people, people literally believe that it is unhealthy to give your children a vaccine or your child a vaccine. And, um, I mean, that's in part because people are unable to really assess all the information that's available partly because it's written in a language that they cannot understand. It's written, and then it's also behind a paywall. Whereas blog information with pseudoscience is written at a level everybody can understand, and it's written in such a way that people feel maybe a bit more, like, respected and a bit more, like, heard, quote-unquote. Whereas doctors are more likely to maybe just dismiss their fear and be like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, which that's, like, the last thing you should do if you really want somebody to listen to you. I'm absolutely on your side here. These are, however, I think, two different issues, and the one is the language we use when we write papers, the other okay. one are the paywalls, and the Germans that we're talking about today are only responsible for one of these problems. Absolutely. The, one, the other ones, yeah. this is our own fault that we don't engage in the public, in their language. Future podcast episode. Future podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Put, a, put a cork in that for now. I, I think the um, whether the public trusts journals and articles that it reads is a really interesting point, but um, it must start off with whether scientists trust the, the articles that are being published. And the the whole thing that underpins the journal's grip on scientific publishing is the peer review system, so that the paper gets sent uh, to three or four uh, experts in the field. It's um, read by them, and they assess the paper on how um, how feasible what they're saying scientifically is and whether there are any obvious mistakes in the paper. What they don't do is they repeat all of the experiments in the paper. Um, So no one actually tests the exact scientific protocols again. Um, And so this has been a, this is, and it would be a huge expense to do that, but that would be the only way to make sure that everything is actually repeatable. Uh, There is a caveat there. There are a few um, journals that do repeat the experiments uh, in, in chemistry. Um, they, they do they do exist, but the cost is so astronomical just to repeat someone else's science that in 90% of all pu- papers published, it, it won't have been done. Um, and so the idea is that that's then left to the, the researchers who come to read the paper to um, repeat the experiments and use them and so on and so forth. But the, the paper's then already been published. It's already locked in the in the journals and online, and it's considered scientific truth, even though scientists could go and do the, do the science, find it's not actually reproducible. There's no way of writing back to the, back to the journal and saying this paper, I mean, that big, big crises happen and, and then whole papers have to be retracted, but that whole system is so slow that the, the system isn't self-correcting itself as science should be. Absolutely. And I think that um, something that was really floating around in my head that I've heard the idea of before is that perhaps like one potential solution, at least in like social psychology and psychology, was actually having master students uh, as like their thesis project to replicate some of the some of the more famous experiments or some of the experiments that could be easily replicatable. Because, you know, that way they're, you know, getting their hands on like, okay, what does like a real study do? And then it also kind of seeks to address like some of the issues that we're seeing. Um, with like what you said, um, but I, I guess in different fields, it's it's very different. I mean, of course, it's it wouldn't be feasible, for example, in 
a lot of the neuroscience studies, like, I mean, who's going to hand the MRI machine over to a master's? Or tell researchers in America to rebuild CERN and start oh, the whole yeah. thing again from the top. <laughs> yeah, you mean you can't collect 100,000 Swedes? Oh, well, sorry, then you're... A... I think there's downsides and upsides with this. On one hand, a student would learn how an actual study, a successful study is being done and not end up in a dead end and having to defend their thesis with only like half a study. On the other hand, you don't get to do your own project, right? You yeah. get to do someone else's project, which yeah. might maybe be fine, fine, which might maybe be enough at, in some point in your studies, maybe in some practical course before the actual thesis or something like that, but it's a very interesting point to make. Yeah. And something that should be discussed more, I guess. Yeah. The other thing where, I don't know if that's being done, if that's being discussed, where I can imagine we can ask for more uh, people to reproduce other other people's science is in grant applications. I can imagine there could be a system where you apply for grant money with the with the side note part of that money, or with getting this money, you subscribe to replicating, let's say, three studies over the the funding period. Hmm. I really like that idea. That would be cool. I mean, this again because it costs money to do experiments. Someone has to put the money up for this for this to occur, and so it will only ever come from the grant. Um, grant providers and grant bodies for that sort of thing to happen, um, but then you, you, I mean the cost to them if they funded science that's un, it, non-reproducible, then it's just wasted money. That's you know crazy. I guess we wasted a lot of money already in this way, and maybe if we just all agreed, maybe we shouldn't all only do new things, but try to establish the things that are there and see if these are actually real or not, or worth all the money we put in already. That would be one, one way to start it. Um, I think it's also important to note as well that there is a little bit of um, maybe a, um, a disadvantage of doing a replication study because, you know, likely if you're doing a replication study, it won't be cited as highly as if it's novel research. And then we also see that maybe journals are not journals are um, not as keen to, to publish um, uh, studies that are reproducing other results. And so maybe there's just a general push that, you know, in every single um, new um, new issue that comes out of this journal, at least one or two studies should be replicating previous work, maybe from that journal or maybe from somebody else in the field. So at least then there's still like a fighting chance for researchers that are very interested in reproducing this work to have a fighting chance of getting their quote unquote impact factor up or other potential um, career advancements. Yeah, we need some kind of reward to to replicate other people's science. And right now there is, as far as I know, none. Another way you could think about it is if the journals were more happy to publish um, studies that refuted existing studies. Um, and, and these things do get published, and there are these big controversies in the literature that, that kind of get talked about and letters come back and forwards published. But um, more and more we're seeing that the journals are, um, are slow to provide retractions and also consider that any refuting evidence um, not beneath them to publish. Um, and so they don't give the same weight to a, ref- a refutation as they give to a new discovery. Like a new discovery is super exciting. Everyone gets all excited, but it's equally valid to say, no, this is wrong. And that's equally as interesting scientifically and, and valid. And it's still not done. And people want to protect their reputations. Journals want to make sure that they look the best and so they, they, they have a reputation to protect as well. And that's where it's going wrong. 
I absolutely agree. Uh, the other thing you touched on uh, a few minutes ago, Chris, uh, was the um, reviewing aspect. And while I do think the peer review is super important for the scientific method for progress, the question is being raised if it is the best way to do it. Right now, it might be the best way we have explored so far, but especially with the internet, there might be other options and they're being discussed. What do you think about those? So um, I know of a couple of things that are being tested out, like preprint servers are coming, are used now quite extensively. Um, there are other ones. So uh, preprint servers means you can upload your paper, your manuscript, and it's not being reviewed at all. And then, so you basically put your marker and say, I published this first, and then you just submit it to a bigger journal and there it is reviewed then. And, and while it's up, up online, you can get comments back on, on, the, on it. Um, so that's kind of cool. You can know whether you're going in the right direction early on. It's like a post-publication um, review process. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Um, but I think it, you were talking about these micro-publications. Uh, yes, I'm really excited about those. The idea is that basically back then people published books and later at some point, I would say like 100, 150 years ago, these journals came about and people started publishing smaller units of information which accelerated the process significantly because all of a sudden it took maybe months or very few years to get the information out and also everything in print, of course. Today, this is even faster and while it is the same system, we submit to a journal who edits sends it out to review and then prints it most of the time as a PDF and puts it on a server. The idea of these publications is to digest the publishing unit, to decrease it even more, to not publish a story or a narrative as we do right now in, in papers, but to publish single experiments and getting feedback from the community on single experiments, publishing one, one by one in very high frequency so people can actually kind of track live what you're doing comment on it, engage with it, and later you can still put it together in the story and say, so this is the full thing that I did basically and include all these experiments and link them in a database kind of like system. Mm, I think I, I, in some ways I like that. There's always been this problem of uh, salami slicing research of people producing papers that have too little information in them. And I think you, you run the risk of um, being swamped. It's like having your the friend who always posts pictures of every dinner and breakfast they have on their on their Instagram feed. You might you might end up where there's such a deluge of small bits of information that the entire story gets lost. I think this is exactly not the case because salami slicing is not a thing if every single experiment is its own tiny publication with a very low merit in it. It's not like you publish a gigantic story or often it's very incremental findings. But everything, every, every time it's something new and something interesting, something along the line to kind of a bigger story. I guess my only like kind of critique is I'd be a bit afraid of uh, p-value fishing, for example. So the idea is that you have like a lot of little avenues that you can you can go down with your experiment, at least in like psychology and the social sciences. And so the idea is that okay, we're going to do this correlation with this correlation, this correlation with this correlation, just kind of see what comes out, and then publish all these like. Little mini, um, little What's mini papers. What's wrong with that? With, uh, with p hacking, um, the idea is that you know you always have like a 0.05 chance or a five percent chance that this that the that the uh, effect that you're seeing is actually just due to like chance. 
So I actually explained this incorrectly. So what we say when something has a p-value of 0.05, that means that even if there's no true association between the different variables, you would still see some sort of observed difference um, in 5% of the studies or data points just due to random sampling error. I also wanted to add that um, there's a lot of pushback in the scientific community about the use of p-values, and I completely support their arguments. But again, that's another podcast for another day. Sorry, I wasn't wondering why oh. he had these wrong. Oh, sorry. But, um, why is it wrong to publish more and maybe arbitrary or... Oh, you mean people just correlate things and, until they find... Yeah, it. yeah, until they find something. But then if you have these micro-publications, um, even though you say that, like, you know, it, it wouldn't have as much value, there might be some people that just want to simply seem prolific, simply seem like they've been... You know, they're very industrious people. And I think that even if we remove the impact factor and even if we remove you know, most of the prestige among more publishing, I think that it's still going to be there and it's still going to be a really big temptation for people to seem very industrious um, so that, you know, they can advance their career. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, okay, let's say this, the, the micro-publications happen or, or we have all the everything on preprint servers um, all at the same, like there's no, um, there's no like prestige preprint server or anything like that. It's all one server for everyone. How do you suggest that me as a scientist, I, I divide up my time? How do I find the papers that interest me and are important in my field? Like, am I going to just be Googling the whole thing the whole time? Or are there other ways that you would suggest? I would say a very sophisticated tagging system. So, um, I mean, we have it a little bit now, um, but I would see it as even more refined. So you put your, you know, you put your paper in like maybe like a more broad category, like, you know, the hard sciences, soft, you know, social sciences, and then, like, within that, like, you know, chemistry, physics, and then you can have multiple tags. And so that way you maybe could, like, browse by tag. And then, um, and then of course, just, like, common mesh term, you know, mesh terms and those sorts of things. And, and if, say, you're um, on one day, you do an experiment, um, which is good. It's good. It's a valid experiment. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of, it's not very um, novel. Yeah. And then the next day you do the, an experiment, which is groundbreaking. And you then, that day, publish that experiment. How would I know whether to look, which one to look at to save myself time? Which is there some way you would ascribe value to one over the other? Or I don't think you can. I think this would come only through the community, sort of like a, a Reddit upvote system or something like that. Something along that line. But then the problem I see with that is that you have very famous professors that would automatically get more clout um, for like a really basic study compared to like maybe a. a a new PhD student or something that really did do a paper that would be sincerely worth celebrating. And so that would be, I guess, the only issue I see. There's always going to be people that are inherently more popular than others. I mean, in a kind of way, the citation system we have at the moment is a Reddit upvote system. Um, it just takes a long time to, 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 for the statistics Absolutely. to be generated. And exactly what you were saying, Ashley, happens already. Like big name professors for very um, boring work, get loads of citations just because of their name. And that's that's appalling. Like, that really shouldn't happen. We should be judging everything basic, based on the science. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you're right. that the, the system would always be gamed by people. Yeah. To answer one more thing in the question earlier of um, how this database would look like, to take one step back, one thing that the journals are doing right now is kind of sorting by topic, at least most of them, unless they're really big ones that are kind of sorted by excitement, I guess. You could say, well, with these journals, you know, um, we find the publications from your field. Something I can imagine then, something like a job, or at least a profession on the side, 
would be to then people who go through the literature and sort topics, maybe write newsletters or these are the 10 hottest papers in synthetic chemistry last week. Oh, with the, with, the, with the dog gift? You have to have a dog gift for every, Absolutely. like... You're not buzzfeeding all <laughs> of science, are you? Of course, it's the direction it's going to go to. That you kind of have a digested version of the literature of the last weeks. In the we have this already with, um, with the email notifications from Weather Science and PubMed and so on. You can, you can list a bunch of tags and you get all the papers sent that have, um, that have these tags in them. It already exists and I think it will only get stronger. Uh, to double mm-hmm. back around to my point that I made earlier about, um, you know, just simply the inaccessibility to the general public about, um, you know, science, that actually kind of more buzzfeeding science to some extent might actually help with this problem. So, I mean, of course, I, I don't suggest that we add dog gifts to uh, all of our papers that we submit, but some sort of something that allows uh, allows our work to be more easily digestible. I mean, that's the kind of the, the um, it's sad to say, but um, one of the ways I get like read around, maybe not in my area, but in general science is from news aggregator websites and Twitter, where people suggest some really cool paper. And then I read it and it's, I'm reading, I don't know, psychology, biology, something else that I really, I wouldn't do for my day job. And that is how I'm getting my scientific news. So uh, yeah, it's, it's starting to happen. The other question, uh, one of the other big issues in the peer review to go back again is that all the way back, all the way back oh, is so integral for the entire issue. Or one of the arguments people bring often about uh, why the journals are so important is because they kind of administer peer review and they make it happen like it wouldn't happen otherwise. That's kind of their merit to the to the scientific value. Which you can say many things about, I think overall this is true. And I kind of want to discuss the questions that come from this with you guys, like questions like should the reviewers be paid? Are they doing a good job as as they go? And, and is this entire thing actually working? Do you think they should be papers? I mean, as someone who's reviewed a few papers myself, yes, I would love to. I love to. I have an extra, extra few quid in the bank. Um, that would be amazing. But um, I think they should be paid, and in some reviewers are paid. Um, but uh, in general, it's it's considered your duty as a scientist to to review a paper, um, and I think that's right. You, we we have a duty to make sure that the scientific literature is curated. Um, However, the problem is now with the internet and with the ease of public pub- publishing, there is just so many papers. There's a need for so many reviewers that if you were to spend your time actually reviewing everything very carefully, even reproducing everything very carefully, um, you would have no time to do your own science. Um, and it, unless you turned it into an entire profession of its own, where you could be a professional reviewer and just go through the literature, reading carefully, and this sort of thing, and that might actually be a really good thing to give a, make it a profession, give it some respectability, and then we probably would see better reviewing. Because I I know of examples of people who just didn't have the time or or inclination, and sort of would either offhand reject a paper or offhand accept a paper based maybe on the name of the person or, you know, like only reading the thing for reading the first three lines of it and just sending it off. Well, I think actually what you just said was um, we could make it a profession. And I think we could make it a part-time profession, which would solve one of the really big issues in academia, which is funding for salary, right? 
So basically, you mm. could be paid, let's say, 20% for reviewing, and on Fridays, you only review papers. And this way, you get, yeah. get to a full salary with, I mean, how much do you live up as a postdoc? It's not, it's not much, right? Oh, don't get me started on this. <laughs> 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 yeah. Different of course, it's not enough. No, please don't. No, actually, so please don't tell me. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's an excellent idea. I think that turning into it like a respectable profession, I mean... Uh, there, I think in general, there does need to be more avenues for uh, post-grads, whether it be post-masters or post-PhD, for um, people to kind of stay in academia. Maybe if they realize that doing their own research is not a career path for them. And I think that's a really valid solution. And uh, I think it would be a very interesting job for many people because yeah. you stay on top of the most novel science. You still have to apply a lot of knowledge that you learn about while reading also and doesn't necessarily mean you have to have to have done everything yourself you just have to know a lot and to be good at reading and and writing and, and reviewing i think that's a, a skill many people have who might end up in the lab but might not be great with the day-to-day lab work and things and I think that the editors of these journals are quite, I mean, they're quite accomplished people. And I think that they would also be like, you know, for example, really able to tell like a good reviewer from a bad reviewer. They, they would do an excellent job of being, being able to vet somebody's skills. So I, I do actually think that this would be a really valid solution. It wouldn't just be, they wouldn't just probably let anybody, um, especially in the, you know, uh, quote unquote, bigger name journals. I wonder though, how the, how people would start to game the system, um, I recently read a paper about um, the problems with meta-analyses in the um, in the medical literature. So there's a there's a publication that's solely dedicated to doing meta-analyses. I've forgotten the name. It's Coburn Review. No, Cochrane. Cochrane. Yeah, the Cochrane Co- reviews. Yeah. Um, that review um, uh, publication of these meta-analyses. Uh, there was a, a paper in Nature recently saying that a lot of the conclusions from them are completely not valid. But this this um, company is paid to do these meta-analyses and there's some vested interests like the drug companies or whoever are um, are, are involved and are, are gaming the system. And that's terrible. Like, again, there's another problem that you're going to get. So maybe if you had professional reviewers, some sort of like um, uh, bribery or something could, could become uh, could become present in the system. I think that's absolutely the case. And I mean, if you look at like kind of who holds the money, um, it's going to be people who, you know, are, you know, highly ranked in their field. It's going to be drug companies. And is that ultimately who's going to be funding these reviewers? Um, that's a really good point that you brought up as well. Um, the other question is if the peer review process is, has to be as rigorous as it is right now. There have been some studies on, actually quite some, on how successful peer reviewers. So people basically wrote manuscripts purposely put mistakes in them and would measure how many reviewers would pick up on them. And it's not so much, actually. Like 20% in an average. Which is, in a way, fine. Imagine there's a study people worked on for two years and you, you give it an hour to review it, or, or three. That's, that's not like that's, that's not really a decent proportion, right? And, and obviously, since you're also not getting any reward for much deeper review, you will end up not seeing many of these mistakes and that's completely fine. I guess you cannot blame the reviewer for this at all. That's not my point. That's not the point I want to make. What I want to say is that the system as it is, is maybe just not able to pick up all these mistakes. But so we do have um, a system which is kind of starting to pick up on the mistakes. And there's a website called PubPeer, which allows people to post publication 
uh, highlight any problems they're having with a publication. And this is, I mean, if you want to um, waste your life on the internet, it's great to see these kind of conversations and uh, potentially ends up towards trolling at some points because it is anonymous. Um, but people discussing really high-end papers or high-impact papers um, and and you see this like tearing apart of the paper piece by piece. And I think that's really good for science. Uh, now, if I read a paper and I think, wow, that's that's great, I check PubPeer to, to check whether whatever they've said is controversial or what, what the latest controversy is of the paper. And I think it's an excellent way of getting that, that kind of feedback. So would that be an alternative model to actually reduce the time spent of reviewers? So basically the model I'm proposing is the, the pre-publication reviewers only evaluate the methods and not the implications and discussion at all. Only the methods. Like, is this done with scientific accuracy as we call it by today's standards? And then post-publication, you have the review of discussion of like, why are the things done like this? Does it actually make sense? Does this hold in respect to the literature? Is this novel enough, maybe? So to kind of separate that, that in the, in the, uh, in the pre-publication review, we only review methods. Um, kind of piggybacking off your point, I mean, at least in like the field of epidemiology, we, I, I feel like, not, I don't want to say frequently, um, but I've come across a couple papers where they've said they've done a certain method, and then when you read through their method section, they have not done that method. Like, they've used, like, the wrong type of, like, family analysis or the wrong type of path analysis. And it's not what they described that they did in their introduction or in their... That's what the thing you want to do pre-publication. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that would really, I think that that would really solve that. Well, in a way, this is happening right now, right? I, what, I think yeah. what I want to say is that absolutely. the, the pre-publication reviewers are reviewing too much things they shouldn't, like novelty, or... Um, especially things that are not really the mainstream of science right now, or let's say conf um, un unconventional opinions are often discarded. There are so many Nobel Prizes which have been had issues to be published in the beginning. We talked about yeah, it in the last episode, or like episode three, um, was the exact same thing, right? And this happens a lot, that especially very groundbreaking science is at first being rejected as uh, wrong in the end. So if we were not to discard these things for being non-mainstream and hence we think they're not true, we just say, okay, the methods are done to our current standards and whatever happens after, the com community decides. The, the test of time will show, does it hold, does it not? And if it doesn't, it will just kind of disappear in the database. Um, I think plus one, uh, if I can just kind of add in, like plus one is actually like aiming to do that. Um, not trying to plug the journal, of course, but, um, yeah. So the idea is that they'll, they say that they'll publish, I don't want to say anything, but they'll publish from any field as long as the methods are rigorous. Um, it's quite expensive to publish there. Um, so say what you will about it, but that, that is their aim. Right. It is open access. Everything's open access. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great initiative. Yeah, it's a very great initiative. That's cool. How, how do you um, both feel about the um, the uh, idea that you would um, it's called open peer review and where you would make uh, reviewers' comments um, posted beneath the publication? I mean, it's it's being trialed by some journals, um, and it's because currently I, the comments you make about paper go to the editor and maybe to the original author. Um, and you can write some quite nasty things in them or you can um, dismiss everything out of hand. 
and then those never see the light of day. And so things can get rejected unfairly, potentially. Um, do you think that's a way to get around some of these problems? Absolutely. I think that's just a natural, like that, I think it should be done. I think it's a natural kind of extension of the internet and just how the internet functions. And like, that is one way that we can, uh, we can just kind of push the field forward is if it's not a formal letter, unless you really just want to write like a scathing, you know, scathing long review or long glowing review about it. I do think there are downsides to it. In general, I agree. I think it's a good thing to have, but the downside might be that people are less likely to engage in uncontroversial discussions and say, uh, speak their mind and not just say whatever you want to hear. To do politics in review because it's open might be a disadvantage. Yeah, I think I, I kind of agree with you, Hannes, that, that it would be interesting to see how the system would um, cope with it uh, because people would maybe um, say nice things again about big names in the field in order that they might get some advantage or something like this. So things could be, it could skew things somewhat. It could be open um, but anonymous. Would that work? Maybe. Um, that would be, actually, that might work quite well. Then it wouldn't be obvious to other people who's been doing what, but you could see the comments, the like scientific judgments made. Mm -hmm. I think that would even be preferable to the to the names, um, just so simply you can you can judge them by their own merit rather than like the brand as we were talking about earlier, the the big name associated with the comment. One um, this was actually brought up by a, a editor from Nature who came to do a talk with us, and the other thing they mentioned was that they wanted to blind reviewers to the name of the author or the names of the authors, um, to see if that affects um, how things are. Uh, how things are uh, accepted or not accepted and this sort of thing. Um, and the, the, the um, feedback from the um, uh, scientists was overwhelmingly negative. Every scientist wants to trade off the back of their importance. Um, but in interestingly, they also found that when they did do it, um, the, the acceptance rates were pretty much the same because people inherently know who's working on what in a field and can pretty much guess which authors are where and so on and so forth. So you never really uh, avoid this problem within the system. Yeah, absolutely. Especially within my field of genetics. I mean, if you're working with a certain data set, you know exactly the names that are on the paper, like without even guess, you know, you don't need to guess really. But I thought that, sorry, it just we can edit this out, but I thought that like uh, the names were automatically blinded. Is that actually not the case? No, it comes with the names. Uh -huh. Hey, I didn't know that. Unless they changed it recently, but uh, it's it definitely depends on the zone zone. usually. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, I thought it was a universal thing that the names were blinded. Cool. Okay. To get back to what you said originally, Chris, I think this is a gigantic thing and it's a really big, um, would be overthrowing the, the entire system. And I do want, don't want to discredit journals at all. I think people are doing a great job and I think they do it for from goodwill. And when business interests come into play, this is where things can go wrong, I think. Not to blame anyone. I, I mean, I agree. I think that the problem is that because it underpins everything that we do and the whole way we're, we're judged in our work and whether our pay is um, uplifted or we're given a bonus or all these sorts of things, it's a really important question for us to, as scientists, discuss constantly and constantly try and improve it because it affects us all and it also affects what the public perceive as truth and, and scientific rigor. The question is, uh, for us as scientists, is what can we do 
which paths can we go down to try to make a difference without compromising our own careers? Because if you start not submitting to journals anymore, you will not have a career in science, evidently. So what do you think, what are the things we can do? You talked about uh, preprints that you're using a lot, right? Mm, yeah, I haven't actually used a preprint myself, but I, I read them a lot. Right. I mean, there, there are two things. One is it comes from the funders. Um, that's where the biggest changes can be made. And we're already seeing that where they're forcing everyone to publish in open access. And I think by the end of, um, in say five years time, we'll probably see everything published in open access, which is fantastic. That's solved one of the big problems. Um, but as scientists, we can collectively try and judge each other's work, not just from the names of the journals. Um, I know that places are now signing up to agreements where when they're judging new faculty members, they judge them on this, on the quality of the science, not on the impact factor of the journal that the science, that the paper was written in. And I think that's a really, really Which good... Which means you have to read, to actually have to read the papers of all the applicants. Yes. Yeah. That is, that's, again, this is all the problem is it takes manpower to um, do these things. Which also opens but, up a um, lot of new jobs, right? Just jobs yeah, that have to be jobs. like respected, rewarded and accepted in the community. Yeah, we should support science um, auxiliary jobs much more than we do at the Absolutely. moment because you ne- currently you're considered a failure if you're not a professor, and that's not going to—that's a non-sustainable system to have. It's a literal pyramid scheme. <laughs> it is it's a pyramid literally scheme. a pyramid. I mean, that's final system. <laughs> Another potential solution um, that we can just start doing now is um, based on this really cool website that you sent over, Hannes, called uh, Free Our Knowledge. And the idea is that you can make various pledges at different levels um, to support um, open access publishing, for example, by only publishing your articles in open access journals. Yeah, that's, I think that's a very nice way. Um, the principle is basically that you anonymously sign up to this um, pledge. It's completely anonymous, and by the time you reach the critical mass in your field, everyone agrees to do whatever they subscribe to, which is often just not submitting or reviewing for certain papers to only publish in certain other, sorry, to not to not publish or submit to certain journals to instead submit to other non, uh, non-paywall journals or you submit to, as uh, you subscribe to um, giving post, like post, publication, prints um, after exception, these things. And I think the important point is here that as a scientist, you don't risk your career going rogue alone, but you know by the time you reach the critical mass, you have half the community in your field behind you. And I think that's what it comes down to, that people are afraid of compromising their careers by going rogue alone. And it's completely fair. Who, Who would do it otherwise, right? But knowing that actually half the field, at least things like you, can make a change. I mean, I'll admit that I felt um, a bit worried about doing this podcast with you because the things we're talking about, the ideas and this sort of thing, uh, could be could be career limiting. Um, if you're if you're saying that the system is broken and that you don't want to work with the system, then the system might come back to bite us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that. I think it's better that we do discuss it and we do think of new ways to to fix the system. I don't think that's the case. Well, I, I think I do think the system is broken in a way, but I think most people don't disagree. In a way, you can say that people, uh, the system selects for people who go conform with the system and who share the values, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think people want to do good science. As scientists, we are people who 
work more than most other people for less money and tend to move a lot. This is a lot of personal sacrifice we take for, well, if you want to say it super romantically, work for a better tomorrow. Because you're very curious, because you want to make a change for technology to increase knowledge and all these things. I think as a scientist, you do have kind of a personal agenda here. Clearly not doing it for money. <laughs> That's definitely <laughs> it, right? Giving <laughs> money away, basically. Uh, when publishing and then reading the papers again. I mean, I think it's funny the parallels to doing this podcast as well. It's like we want to talk about these issues. We want to have discussions about these ideas in order to improve the system. And I think, and you know, we can upload these things for free and people can discuss. And it's really cool. It's, it's um, yeah, something that's happening more and more given the internet and the freedom to, to publish whatever you want. Actually, what I meant is that I think most scientists do agree where they are at heart with their science and, and they love it. They do think the system could be better. And if there was a way to improve it, we could. So I think what we just have to do is ask ourselves, what can we do individually? What's the system we want to move to? And how can we do these things without compromising our careers or the scientific value of, of what, what we work on? Yeah. And could we also be um, scientists about it? Could we try a system for a year, see if it works, and then go and say, oh, well, that didn't actually work that well, but maybe this would work, and then go on and go forward? Oh, I guess in... Could you imagine the chaos that would happen if we tried to <laughs> completely on <laughs> when you dismantled the journal publishing system? <laughs> Can you imagine the poor old professors that can't even print a document? <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but I think... But I do think that that is, uh, I mean, ultimately your point still stands and that, um, you know, we should inch towards uh, fixing what we can and, um, you know, try it out and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then, you know, we know it works and what doesn't work. Something I'm afraid of is that these publishers are very, very powerful. Not even individual journals, but the gigantic companies behind them. They are very powerful and they do control so much through that. And I don't even want to blame individual editors at all. That's not my case. I think they're all doing what they do with the best for science in mind. But I am a bit afraid that the power they have is too large to make an actual, uh, for us to actually overthrow it. If that's what, well, I guess I said today, that's what I do want. On the way to a more open, to, on the way to a more open system and a more community-based system with the power not in the hand of, um, of companies, which the publishers are, but in the hand of the society, uh, sorry, in the hand of the scientific community. And I think that's just a very difficult fight to fight because the money is on the side of the, the publishers and the money is the power, right? Yeah, and well, the money is in the hands of the grant um grant bodies and funding bodies and so that's where ultimately change can come from. That's very interesting. Yes, they, yes it is. And actually the funding bodies are often advised by scientists, right? They have their boards of experts from the field who, who um, decide who the grant is going to be given to and who isn't. So maybe even scientists on these boards do have a direct, um, direct impact on how this is going to go through, as you mentioned before, um, the the open access initiatives from granting agencies. But I still do think open access, even in journals, is only part of the solution. I think we do have to get rid of the journals and this completely arbitrary and anachronistic separation by topic at all, especially since science gets so much more interdisciplinary. 
in the end, what, what were we what were we discussing here, Hannes? That we want to totally overthrow the system, but we can't do it all at once. We have to take some time because otherwise, there's going to be a lot of old professors out of a job. Well, then here it comes back to um, if you want to change the system in science, just wait until people retire, which basically puts the the responsibility to us young people and not us young professors because we aren't professors, but to younger professors who can actually make a change and make a difference as soon as they're established, or maybe on the way to be established. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a, just a question of if initiative, if good intent and initiative are rewarded by the peers. Something, I, uh, something like the, the idea of, oh, this person, they don't publish super well, not in super high journals, but the work they do for the system and for scientific progress in the community and it's just so strong. I think it would be an amazing thing to get out there. Mm, I totally agree. I think we need to um, judge each other, maybe not less less harshly, but judge each other by new new metrics mm-hmm. based on reading each other's papers carefully and thinking about the science done ourselves. What's the beer status here? Are we? We're, oh, we're, we're down we're with empty. the beer. Yeah, we finished. We're done. Awesome. Then uh, <laughs> <laughs> then, um, what's the next thing you wanted to talk about, actually? We had something in mind. We had, oh, we had a topic in mind with you, and I wanted to put you together with Philip about correlation and causation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm totally down to talk about some causation. I, I think causation, talk about causation is really cool, especially in epidemiology, because we, don't, we can't do experiments in epidemiology. All we have is observational data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it's it's a very interesting topic in my field, and I'm very I'm always very happy to talk about. I'm it. very excited about this. I don't know much. Like I don't think I can contribute to a lot here, but maybe we can just just interview it more and try. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. I think just like an open dialogue. I mean, because it'll just it's one of those things where like it really is a philosoph like a fundamentally philosophical problem. And it's I think that even if you're not in the field and haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, it's just really fun to chat about it mm-hmm. and awesome. you know ask questions. Looking forward to this. Yeah. Great. I think that's a cool topic. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, then let's go. Okay, guys. See you soon. Happy to say. Bye.